What is up, you brave souls, and welcome to a very special, very spooky episode of the Adversary Podcast. It has been a whole year since we heard about missionaries in the Caribbean dealing with something in their bathroom. Go and check out the upload from last Halloween if you want to hear that story. But today we are back and ready to dive into a topic that I've always wanted to explore ever since the start of this podcast. It was just a matter of when we were going to get there. I spent over a year gathering some of the material included in this episode, and it came to a point where I couldn't wait another minute to share it. So tonight, pay attention, listen closely, and get comfortable if you can, because you're not going to be for very long. Before we get to the goods, I wanted to start off with a few of the other stories I came across this year. Some of the most interesting and inexplicable ones deal with dreams. Part 1. Freaky Dream Stuff Dreams are among the most fascinating phenomena we encounter on a regular basis. They're your thoughts, in a way, but also not, because dreams are usually a strange combination of past experiences, pure fantasy, and things you'd never, ever think about when you're awake. At least once you've probably woken up after a dream and said to yourself, wow. I am messed up. That feeling never lasts long, though, because dreams ultimately mean nothing. There are no real-world consequences to events that take place in your head, right? In short order, we'll find out that that might be the case only most of the time. Dreams, obviously, have some unique qualities. There is no better or more believable simulation than a dream. I've had hundreds, probably thousands of dreams, and yet 99% of the time while I am dreaming, I am convinced that it is real. Once conscious, dreams are easily recognized for what they are, but in the moment while asleep, it can be impossible to tell. They have unrestricted access to all of your senses in addition to your memories. In other words, if you can think it or feel it, it's liable to show up at some point, whether you want it to or not. Pain in a dream, for example, is perceived quite strongly, despite no actual injury being inflicted on the body. I've been cut, stabbed, drowned, thrown off high places, and much more while dreaming. Stress is another feeling that dreams are able to replicate well. Too well, I'm sure anyone who's ever had a dream about school would say. But both pain and stress pale in comparison to dreams' specialty. The emotion our subconscious minds are so adept at reproducing that the word nightmare was invented to describe a dream infected by it. Fear. Only in a dream do we have the ability to scare ourselves, and we're really good at it sometimes. Being able to freak yourself out is a prospect that's kind of alarming when you think about it. It certainly doesn't serve a purpose, but neither does dreaming in general. Ostensibly, that is. I called a girl who served in the Japan Sapporo mission. In her last area towards the end of her mission, she stayed in another sister's apartment during an overnight companion exchange. This apartment had a history that was well known in the mission. A year before this girl went on this exchange, a Japanese sister and her companion were living there. The apartment was laid out like this. The bathroom was located right next to the entrance, which was separated from the kitchen, living room, and bedroom by a long hall. A year ago, one of the sisters was using the bathroom when she heard a knock on the door. Obviously, she thought it was her companion and said something to the effect of, I'll be out in a minute. Afterwards, though, her companion, the Japanese sister, assured her that she hadn't knocked. The incident was mostly brushed off as having been some other noise, but that night, the Japanese sister had a dream, one that was harder to dismiss in light of what had happened that day. In her dream, the sister witnessed a murder taking place in their bathroom. 
The next day, the sisters called the elders and had them rededicate the apartment. They hadn't experienced anything too crazy in the apartment, and a rededication may not have been warranted, but better safe than sorry. As it turns out, their actions at the time were justified by subsequent revelations. The sisters eventually discovered that a murder had indeed occurred in their apartment. A man had killed his wife and child in the bathroom that they used every day. A story like this may seem unremarkable because it could reasonably be chalked up to a bizarre coincidence. Nobody has dreams in which they receive information that they didn't know before. That's not possible. You can't learn new things in a dream, right? Even if you could, the big question of how still looms. And it looms large. In the same mission, Japan Sapporo, a pair of elders were sent to an area far off the coast about five hours away from anything else. The area was basically just a small fishing town, distinguished by a high population of Russian speakers. The elders lived in a house, since it was cheaper than the local apartments, for reasons that became clear later. The house was already suspicious. In fact, it had its own kind of folklore within the mission that was passed down as new elders replaced the departing ones. According to the rumors, some years before, two elders had been assigned to that area, just like normal. Before they moved in, though, they were warned by the outgoing missionaries to never open the door to the attic. Eventually, one of the new elders, acting against that council, gave in to his curiosity, or maybe boredom, and went to investigate the attic. Upon opening the attic door, his nose began to bleed profusely. During his time in that fishing town, and even after he was transferred out of the area, he continued to experience random nosebleeds for the rest of his mission. Fast forwarding to the present, the new companionship of elders was moving into the same house. They had heard the stories and knew about the place's history, but they weren't sure how much was fact and how much was made up to scare other missionaries. It only took a few weeks for the elders to notice the little things, like the bathroom door. Sometimes it would be standing open when the elders were sure it had been closed only a moment earlier. The elders were also aware, and had been for a while, that someone had been killed in the house a long time before any missionaries ever lived there. So naturally, the place had the weird vibe that comes along with knowing you live in a murder house. One night, one of the elders got up to go to the bathroom. He had a bladder condition and had to go like every hour, so it was common for him to make multiple trips during the night. Before going back to the bedroom, he'd always close the bathroom door. Well, the first time he went that night, the door was closed when he got there, and he closed it when he left. But the second time, as he approached the bathroom, he found the door open. Unnerved, he returned to bed where he had a dream. In the dream, he watched as a murder was carried out in a bathtub in a bathroom that looked all too familiar. Asking around town over the course of the next few days revealed that two people had been killed in the elder's house, and one in the exact manner the elder had seen in his dream. Just in case you thought this kind of stuff only happens in Japan, here's one out of Fiji. In Fiji, most of the communities are villages or settlements, basically just a bunch of tiny wooden houses grouped together relatively close. Two sisters were at a settlement one day, going to visit a woman who was a referral from the elders. They had met her and taught her several times before, but that day the woman wasn't home for some reason unknown to them. Making the best of the situation, the sisters went around the settlement looking for other people to teach. They eventually found another lady who was nice and let them in, and told the sisters that her daughter was a member of the church a long time ago. The lady accepted a Book of Mormon, and the sisters set a return appointment for the following week. A week later, the sisters went to visit the person they had originally come to the settlement to see, and luckily she was home this time. After their lesson and preparing to depart, the sisters told the woman that they had met one of her neighbors, had given her a Book of Mormon, and were on their way to visit her next. The woman's expression changed to one of concern. She said, no, don't go back there. She does black magic, her mother-in-law does black magic, stay away from there. One of the sisters was skeptical. 
The woman telling them this had a reputation for being a bit of a drama queen, and prone to exaggeration. But the companion was freaked out, and insisted that they follow the advice they'd been given. Because of the difference of opinion in the companionship, they ultimately chose to not go that day. Instead, the sisters decided they would pray about it that night, and then determine whether or not they'd return to the lady's house in the future. So the sisters had a companionship prayer, and then said their personal prayers before going to bed. That night, the sister who had been skeptical of the woman's claims had a dream. In the dream, the lady who they'd given the Book of Mormon to came to the sister's flat with a knife. The lady broke into the apartment and attempted to kill both the sister and her companion. The next morning, the sister mentioned to her companion that she'd had the weirdest dream, to which the companion replied, So did I. Following a comparison of details, the sisters discovered they had both had the same exact dream. Getting into this black magic stuff opened a whole can of worms for me. From a research perspective, that is. Unsurprisingly, black magic is not very well documented. But a similar topic popped up again and again as I looked for more information on black magic in general. Voodoo. Part 2. Voodon't. Apparently in Haiti, it's a really big deal to do voodoo. In New York City, there was a lady who wanted to be baptized, and I'm quoting the sisters who taught her, but she was super bipolar about it. She'd decide on a date for her baptism and then back out at the last second. This happened several times. The sisters responsible for teaching her also found her to be a bit… off. During the most spiritual parts of every lesson, the woman would burst into laughter for no apparent reason. What had the sisters most concerned, however, were the woman's claims that she was the target of voodoo. Any other companionship might have dismissed this lady's claims as nonsense, but one of the sisters was from Haiti, and according to her, there were signs of voodoo all over the place. For example, the woman had a lot of cats. The Haitian sister told her companion that in Haiti, voodoo is frequently performed on cats because they're a little smarter than other animals. The sisters offered to arrange a priesthood blessing for the woman, which she accepted, and it seemed to fix the quote-unquote voodoo. For a time. Soon the problems returned, another blessing was given, and the cycle continued. The sisters came to suspect that the lady was not a victim of whatever was going on, but a willing participant. They eventually lost contact, and the woman was never baptized. Most of us have heard of voodoo before, and probably have some vague idea of what it is. Voodoo doll might come to mind first. My impression of voodoo has always been that it's a kind of cultural practice associated with Africa or Haiti, and it's usually done with malicious intent. Of course, I was still on the fence about whether or not voodoo or magic have any real supernatural power, or are even legit for that matter, but that's a whole other discussion. I am simply going to relate the events of stories involving voodoo as they were told to me by people who experienced them. The listener will have to use his or her own judgment in believing what they will, but I wouldn't be sharing these accounts if I wasn't convinced they were credible. I learned through a little research that voodoo is actually a religion, and way more complicated than I thought. It originated in West Africa, but split into distinct factions based on geography, resulting in Haitian, Cuban, and Brazilian forms of voodoo. The voodoo that took root and developed in Louisiana is the kind of voodoo most familiar to us today, with its trademark V-O-O-D-O-O spelling. Amidst the situation involving the woman who couldn't commit to baptism, the Haitian sister serving in New York City told her companion more about voodoo and her own personal experience with it. Not all of the Haitian sisters' family were members of the church, just her and her mother were. It was an unpopular move for them to get baptized, as the teachings of the church run contrary to those of voodoo. 
Her extended family were staunch practicers of voodoo, and they were especially displeased with her and her mother's decision. Sometime after she was baptized, she, her mom, and her brother were staying with extended family in a cabin away from home. One of the aunts seized this opportunity to try and perform voodoo on the three of them. The aunt secretly gathered up their shoes and used them as instruments in a ritual. Whatever the ritual was designed to do, the Haitian sister and her mother were not affected, which the sister attributes to them having been baptized and thus protected. Her younger brother, however, had not been baptized. Shortly after, he began to feel ill, and his condition deteriorated to the point of requiring hospitalization. He nearly died. The final story about voodoo that I'll tell here concerns two elders serving on the island of Haiti itself. The elders were natives of Haiti, which is standard procedure for missionaries called there. While traveling through town one day, one of the elders was involved in a pretty severe bike accident that snapped his leg almost in half. It was clear to the companion that the crashed elder needed medical attention right away. He could see that the break was a compound fracture, meaning the bone is sticking out of the skin, and the elder was in considerable pain. But instead of seeking out a doctor or a clinic, the injured elder insisted that they visit a person they were teaching at the time, a known practicer of voodoo healing. The elders made their way to this person, who did a sort of chant or spell that on its face didn't seem to be very effective. But soon after departing, the elder's leg was miraculously healed. The bone set back in place and the elder was able to walk without any issues. Later, though, the elder began to feel more and more uneasy about what he'd taken part in, and ultimately determined it was not in line with his religion. He met with the mission president and explained what had happened, including the crash, the injury, and the instantaneous healing. Upon hearing this, the mission president gave him a blessing, and then sent him home for participating in voodoo. Shortly thereafter, the elder's leg, out of nowhere, broke again, signifying that whatever had been done was undone. At last, we've made it. That part of the episode I promised we'd get to. No sense in delaying it any further. Let's talk about skinwalkers. Part 3, The Skinwalker. The first time I ever heard the word skinwalker was at a campout more than a decade ago, in the context of a spooky campfire story. It went like this. A group of friends were driving a truck late at night down a dirt road on the Navajo Reservation in New Mexico. They were currently looking for a road that led off the res, but were hopelessly lost because of how dark it was and the absence of any landmarks. As they continued to drive, they suddenly spotted a figure in the headlights. Drawing closer, they saw a Navajo man standing on the edge of the dirt road. Slowing to a stop, one of the friends rolled down the window to ask for directions off of the reservation. The Navajo man was kind and showed them on their map which roads to take and how to get there. Thanking the man, the friends rolled up the window and began to drive away. But as they did, the person sitting in the passenger seat looked in the side mirror and saw that the man was no longer standing. He was running. And he was running after them. The friend in the passenger seat yelled at the driver to speed up, and then the man started to change. Running and morphing, he became this animal that was keeping pace with the vehicle. The friends went faster, trying to outrun whatever that thing was. After a distance, they looked back again, expecting to see it reach up and grab the back of the truck. But there was nothing. Only darkness, like before. There is no one cohesive definition about what a skinwalker is, per se. And in contrast to evil spirits, there is no consensus among members of the church as to whether skinwalkers are fact or fiction. They're not, after all, a part of the religion. Some people consider skinwalkers to be witches or similar to witches, while others regard them as mythical creatures that aren't even human. A characteristic of skinwalkers that seems generally agreed upon, however, is their ability to shapeshift, specifically into animals, usually dogs or wolves. 
The name Skinwalker is itself a reference to the supernatural power of skin changing, so to speak. I was disappointed when I saw how short the Skinwalker Wikipedia article is, only a few paragraphs. Granted, I don't really trust any of the information on there about the lore, but I wanted a better idea of what I was dealing with. The article actually explains why it's so short, saying that the legend of the Skinwalkers is not well understood outside of Navajo culture, mostly due to reluctance to discuss the subject with outsiders. Navajo people are reluctant to reveal Skinwalker lore to non-Navajos or to discuss it at all among those they do not trust. So naturally, the topic is a bit restricted if you're looking for answers online. Since I can't verify how much about skinwalkers on the internet is true, I'll rely solely on the experiences of Navajo people and missionaries that served on or near the Navajo Reservation. The Navajo Reservation, or Navajo Nation, is located in the Four Corners region of the United States, a total of 27,000 square miles spread over small parts of Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico. The Navajo Nation is home to over 170,000 people and has its own government, constitution, and law enforcement agency. The vast majority of the area's population are of Native American descent. Two sisters in the New Mexico Farmington Mission were teaching a man who was a member of the church returning to activity after a long period of being away. He lived just off the Navajo Reservation. One day, this man called up the missionaries and said, Sisters, can you please come over? And the sister said, Sure. And so they went over to the man's house that day and found the man in a state of terror. They could tell just by looking at him that something had scared him beyond belief. So they asked, hey, what's been going on? And the man started into a story about the night before. While trying to sleep, he heard all sorts of noises outside his house that grew increasingly louder until he thought he heard footsteps on the roof. Being Navajo himself, he suspected and feared that it was a skinwalker. Despite the racket, his wife, who was in bed next to him, was sound asleep and didn't wake up. As the noises continued, a red light suddenly appeared in the bedroom. The man became paralyzed, and any attempt to move was to no avail. He now glimpsed a figure in the room with him, standing behind the light. The red light inched toward him, getting closer and closer until it was going into his chest. The man found himself unable to speak or cry out for help. But then, by his own account, he remembered God and his power, which somehow loosed his tongue and allowed him to pray out loud for deliverance. The light began to recede until it was expelled completely from his body before turning white and dispersing. The figure vanished along with it. The room was dark and quiet again, and the man's wife was somehow still asleep. Upon reflection the next morning, the man wasn't sure what to make of the experience. He initially believed it was just a dream, until his sister mentioned she had observed strange lights under his bedroom door that night. Panicked, the man called the missionaries and then requested that his home be blessed, which was done by the ward mission leader that same day. In the Philippines, there's a legend involving shape-shifting creatures called the Oswang. According to Wikipedia, Oswang is an umbrella term for various shape-shifting evil spirits in Filipino folklore, such as vampires, ghouls, witches, viscera suckers, and werebeasts, usually dogs, cats, pigs. A sister serving in the Philippines learned a little bit about the Oswang firsthand. Throughout her mission, she heard tales from the locals of people that would turn into animals at night, and even some that would eat other people. Of course, the sister had no way of knowing what was true and what wasn't, but she reasonably assumed that everything about the Oswang was a myth and dismissed it as such. 
She did have kind of an interesting experience, though, when one day she struck up a conversation with a woman on the street, a normal thing for missionaries to do. She tried to make a connection with the woman by finding something they had in common that they could talk about, and eventually the woman said that she doesn't sleep at night. The sister, who suffered from insomnia herself, jumped on the similarity and said, hey, me neither. But the woman responded with, no, I don't sleep at night. Oblivious, the sister persisted, no, yeah, me too. I only get like two hours max. The woman finally looked the sister right in the eye and said in a dead serious tone, You don't understand. I don't sleep because I turn into an animal at night. While researching for this episode, I had the good fortune of meeting someone who actually grew up on the Navajo reservation. She was kind enough to share some of her experiences there as well as her insights into skinwalkers. When I spoke to her, I asked her straight up, Do you believe in skinwalkers? After a long pause, she said, Yeah, I do. She went on to explain that she was taught skinwalking is a form of witchcraft, which is why she felt it could be possible. She also said that skinwalkers are born out of hate, and their purpose is to freak people out, curse others, and even kill. But then she described how one could stop a skinwalker. If a person can look a skinwalker in the eye and recognize who it is, the skinwalker will effectively lose its power. I asked if she'd had any first-hand experiences with skinwalkers, and she replied, no but she had heard stories on the reservation, and one account from a close friend, which she proceeded to tell me. Late one night, her friend was at home babysitting her siblings because their parents were out for the evening. They were sitting in the living room watching TV when a sound caught their attention. The friend and her siblings looked over towards the origin of the noise and noticed something in the window, but couldn't quite tell what it was. Nighttime on the reservation could be especially dark way out in the desert, and in a rare twist, it was raining as well. Later, their uncle stopped by to check on the kids, and he stepped inside with a concerned expression on his face. He said, Hey, are you guys not paying attention? There's something outside. The friend and her siblings had seen something in the window, and even attempted to chase off whatever it was, but it was no use. It just kept coming back. As a result of the low visibility, they couldn't identify it as a person or animal either. Eventually, they all just chose to ignore it since it wasn't really bothering them aside from its unwanted presence, and the shadow in the window disappeared. The next morning, the weather was clear, so the uncle and the family went outside to inspect the area around the house in the light of day. What they found shocked everyone except for the uncle. In the mud, fresh from the rainfall of the night, were rabbit tracks. But that's not what frightened the family. What truly shook them to the core was the fact that although the tracks had the same shape as a rabbit's, they were the size of a human footprint. Now more on edge, they followed the tracks, which led away from their property, and found that they gradually got farther and farther apart, until they stopped in the middle of the desert. The uncle then revealed what he had seen while walking into the house that night. Something had been standing by the window when he'd arrived, as he'd said, but it wasn't a person. It looked like a horse, rearing up on its hind legs and pressing its front legs against the house, but it was no horse. When the uncle got closer as he strode up to the door, the creature hopped around the other side of the house and vanished from view. And now, the final story about skinwalkers for the time being. Two elders were out on the res visiting a member. It was getting late, around 9 or 9.30 p.m., so the member said, I'll drive you two home so you don't have to walk. As the member was driving, he started to swerve like crazy. And the elders were like, whoa, what's up? What happened? And the member said, oh, I was going to hit those skinwalkers. And so the member stopped the car, and they all looked through the back window to see if they'd hit anything. The elders watched as two silvery figures peeled themselves off the ground 
and stood up. As soon as the member saw that the figures had risen to their feet, he floored it, and they sped down the road, trying to put as much distance as possible between them and whatever they had just pissed off. While the member drove, he told the elders that as soon as they got home, they should lock all their doors and hide somewhere inside away from the windows. The member finally reached the missionary's home and dropped the elders off. The elders called their mission president and told him about what had just happened, and he said to do the exact same things the member had instructed them to do. So the elders locked all the doors and barricaded themselves in a room without any windows. And then, they waited. For a long time, there was silence. But then, suddenly, there were scratching noises, coming from the walls. Doors began to rattle. Windows began to shake. Footsteps were heard on the roof. This continued for hours and hours and hours all through the night. But when the sun rose on the next day, it stopped. 